0: Hi and welcome to On Air with Clinical Respiratory News. I'm Nina Wiklund and I'm Daniela Erzamtosi and together we'll be exploring news, ideas and developments in sleep and respiratory medicine. On Air is intended for healthcare professionals only. Hello and welcome to this episode focusing on patients receiving home NIV treatment. Discussing this theme with us today is Dr. Jean-Michel Arnal from Hospital Saint-Mus in Toulon, France. Dr. Arnal is known for a whole range of publications about acute and chronic pulmonary disease. He arranges trainings and is the face behind the Springer book Monitoring Mechanical Ventilation Using Ventilator Waveforms. Welcome, Jean-Michel.
1: Thank you very much, Nina. Welcome, everybody.
0: First, I would like to ask you, home ventilation, that's a very specific topic. Where does your dedication to patients on this treatment come from?
1: I'm an ICU physician and I've been always fascinated by non-invasive respiratory support, namely NIV and high flow. This treatment have changed the management and the outcome of the ICU patients. And as you know, uh, a significant number of these patients need NIV beyond the ICU. And this is how I started to be interested in this field. And it's very interesting because I learned what is a chronic respiratory disease patient. This was also very useful for the ICU practice.
0: Mm, I understand. We're very thankful that you're here today to give your knowledge onwards to others. You're the corresponding author of an article that was published in Journal of Clinical Medicine in March 2023. It's called Monitoring Systems in Home Ventilation. What was the reason that you and your colleagues decided to write this article?
1: We tried to explain that NIV needs to be monitored. You know, Nina, NIV at home is one of the most complex treatments that we can provide to the patient. Uh, It combines some technology, ventilator, mask. We have very fine settings to do, at least uh, six or seven very precise settings, but we deal with patients with chronic disease. They are their own motivation and we need them to participate. And of course, their comfort is very important. So we cannot imagine to uh, monitor an IV just by using one blood gas from time to time and uh, looking at the usage rate. Uh, we believe that today there are many tools to follow patients and to monitor the NIV. And for each of these tools, we try to explain what is the clinical value, what is the reliability, what, is, what are the limits, and we try to position these tool from each other, meaning that we determine basic monitoring package, what we have to do at least as monitoring uh, for NIV patient, and an advanced monitoring package for specific case or for expert centers.
0: I see. Um, so this, this article is something that could be read by both uh, clinicians that have been working with NIV for a long time and uh, clinicians that are new to NIV, right?
1: Yes, Absolutely.
0: You talk about the details and you're very knowledgeable when it comes to interpreting ventilator waveforms. And uh, on page five in the article in Journal of Clinical Medicines that uh, I mentioned before, you point out some of the most common patient ventilator asynchronies in a very clear way with pictures of the detailed pressure and flow curves. Um, Now we don't have pictures with us, but could you please highlight one asynchrony that you think is easy to describe and that's vital for the clinicians to note in order to create maximum comfort for the patient?
1: Yes, sure. One of the most common and dramatic asynchrony is under-assistance. Under-assistance means that the patient does not get enough air because pressure support is too low and or the pressurized time is too long. And you can see it on the waveforms. You remember that normally the inspiratory flow looks like a a triangular shape, meaning that the flow is maximum at the beginning of inspiration with a flow around 40, 50, 60 liters per minute in adult, and then decreased gradually. If we have under assistance, the flow has a rounded shape, meaning that the patient has to make an effort all along the insufflation time, and then we see a low flow, below 40 liters per minute with a run shape. So this means the patient does not get enough air and it's very important to detect it because the solution is quite simple. We just have to increase pressure support by at least two centimeters of water and a shorten pressurized time and the patient will feel more comfortable and the treatment will be more efficient.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. This will certainly help the clinicians uh, finding it difficult to set the ventilators in the right way. Talking about features, what are the detailed features that you consider the most important apart from IPAP and EPAP?
1: I would probably say the cycling criteria. You know, I believe that the cycling criteria should be individualized for each patient. The cycling criteria determine the time window for insufflation. You know that in an IV, we don't use a fixed inspiratory time. If we use a fixed inspiratory time, it's very uncomfortable for the patient. So by using a cycling criteria, we determine a sort of time window that could be short, middle, or long. And within this time window, the patient can decide about an inspiratory time. So how do we do this when we do the first Uh, settings on the first NIV session, we set EPAP, we set IPAP, trigger, pressurized time, and then we can start with the cycling criteria at medium, and we ask the patient, is the breath, the mechanical breath, too long or too short? If the patient says, well, no, it's too long, then you change the cycling criteria to high setting, and if conversely it's too short, then you change the cycling criteria to a low setting.
0: So now we have talked a little bit about the how to set the ventilator when it comes to the features. Uh, we will move over to telemonitoring because in the article you also state that telemonitoring should be integrated into the strategy as it has the potential to improve the quality of NIV and the efficiency of the medical service. How specifically can telemonitoring make a difference now and in the future, do you think, Jean-Michel?
1: Well, you know that the conventional follow-up for NIV is a regular visit from the home care provider and a regular visit at the hospital or at the medical office. And this visit in my country occurs every three months, sometimes four months, sometimes six months, depending on the, the centre. What happened between these two visits. We don't know, actually. And the risk that the mask is a little bit damaged and the patient feels some leaks but is not able to realize that he's uncomfortable because of the leaks or that the patient changes. For example, the patient puts some weight or loses some weight and the cycling criteria is no more appropriate. The patient gradually becomes uncomfortable and then decreases Uh, the NIV use or even stop using the NIV. And we may realize it only a couple of months uh, later and it's too late because in the meantime, it may exacerbate and be hospitalized. So telemonitoring provides a continuous monitoring of the patient. We have less granular data than when we download data from the ventilator, but the main value is that it's day by day. So if something happens, we will be able to detect it and to correct it, I would say on time. And the aim of telemonitoring is to improve the quality of the NIV and by this to improve the quality of life and to decrease the risk of hospitalization.
0: Yes, you give very good advice in the article how to start up telemonitoring and which parameters to follow. You mentioned, for example, usage leaks, AHI and respiratory rate as parameters of high importance. Uh, It would be really interesting to dive a bit deeper in these um, topics with you. If we take usage first, for example, why is that specifically important when you telemonitor a patient?
1: Well, you know, in usage, we have to look at usage rate meaning the number of hours that the patient uses the NIV per day, but also compliance, which is to look if the patient uses NIV every day, if they use it at nighttime, and if they have a lot of fragmentation. If we have a patient that uses, let's say, seven hours regularly at night without fragmentation, it means that the treatment is well tolerated. It does not mean that the treatment is optimized, but at least it's well tolerated. Conversely, if we see that the patient may have six hours of uh, usage rate, but with a lot of fragmentation and sometimes does not using, then it's a signal that something is wrong. I cannot say what is wrong, but we have to look at the leaks. We have to look at the upper airway obstructions or the patient monitor synchronization to find out what is a problem. So looking at usage, for me, it's a screening tool to see if the tolerance of the treatment.
0: Mm, I understand. I was a little bit fascinated by leaks when I read the article, because I know that leaks is important, but you described it very well in the article, how important it is. Could you please explain a bit to the listeners about that?
1: Well, Nina, to be honest with you, I think... Telemonitoring of leaks is the variable that is the most important to monitor because now with the telemonitoring, we can read almost every day the leak profile. So we can see first on the statistic if there are some leaks, and if there are, we can look at the leak profile, which is the repartition of the leak along the night. And by this, the clinician can guess what is the cause of the leak and so decide for an action because, of course, it's not the same shape if you have a patient opening the mouth during the the night with a nasal mask or if you have leaks uh, due to a malposition of the mask uh, by the patient. And so this is very important. And as you know, if we can improve the leak management, we improve the quality of an IV.
0: Okay, I understand. Uh, AHI is another parameter that you take up as important. Why is that so important?
1: Well, it's, it's an index that describes upper hour obstruction, but we have to admit that the sensitivity of this index is not perfect, especially in case of leaks then uh, the, 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 the algorithm may not be able to detect upper error obstruction. On, uh, conversely, the specificity is excellent. So I would suggest to look at it. If we have some upper error obstruction, it means that we have to do something. But if the results show that there is no It does not mean that there is absolutely no airway obstruction. The only way to see it would be to look at the flow waveforms. But for this, we need granular data. We cannot do it uh, on telemonitoring for the moment.
0: Okay. And last but not least, respiratory rate. Why is that important?
1: Well, Nina, it's a complex topic. Um, What we telemonitor is not the patient respiratory rate, it's the ventilator rate. And you know that there may be a big discrepancy between the ventilator rate and the patient rate because they are ineffective inspiratory effort or sometimes auto-trigger. However, there are three studies, at least, that show that in COPD patient, the respiratory rate increases before an exacerbation. So the question is, can we use an increase in respiratory rate to predict an exacerbation? The results are not so convincing, meaning that the sensitivity is around 50%. Specificity is better. It's around 75 to 80%. But still in my practice, what we do with my team, if we notice that the median respiratory rate in a COPD patient increased by at least two on two consecutive days, and on top of that, there is abnormalities in the daily usage that could be an increase in daily use or a decrease or a fragmentation, then we call the patient. But honestly, do we need to monitor respiratory rate to predict exacerbation? I mean, our patients are conscious and they have a cell phone, usually. So in my view, instead of trying to find some complex threshold to determine if this could be an exacerbation, we should spend more time to educate our patient and to make sure that when the patient feels dyspnea, feel that there is an excess of secretion, fever, whatever, he should call us. So I don't expect telemonitoring to to be so useful in detecting uh, exacerbation. I prefer to educate the patient. And you know, the only risk or disadvantage of telemonitoring is a risk of complacency. So as clinicians, we should not promote complacency. We should promote autonomy. And this is why, in my view, we have to associate or combine telemonitoring with education of the patient.
0: So education of the patient is key in order for them to understand that an exacerbation is coming and then respiratory rate could be a help in order to uh, highlight it for you as well.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: I have a very specific question when it comes to France. Uh, I heard that you have uh, a new reimbursement system, that you have started to reimburse telemonitoring for home NIV. and uh, Do you expect that to change the care pathway for your hospital?
1: Yes, at, at middle term or long term. So in France, the NIV reimbursement is not changed, but what is new is that we can add, it's not mandatory, but we can add telemonitoring reimbursement. And then the rule is that the telemonitoring has to be done by clinicians. It has to be done by physician, nurses, or nurse practitioner. So it means that every centers or every big centers will start to open the telemonitoring uh, unit to take care of this patient. So it will take a long time to set these centers, and it won't be probably in every hospital. But at the end of the day, yes, I think it will change the pathway. What I hope is that by doing this, the patient will have to come less often to the hospital for a visit. And hopefully we can decrease the number of hospitalization also.
0: Yes, I guess you're in the same situation as the rest of the world, that you you need your beds for others and you don't have enough time or enough staff right now. Is that the case?
1: Yes, of course. This is a challenge we face.
0: How do you monitor symptoms in your clinic? You mentioned in the publication that there are some limitations when you monitor symptoms in this patient group. Uh, Could you please explain what you mean by limitations?
1: Well, I think it's very important to monitor symptoms, but we have to keep in mind that the patient underestimates the symptoms, meaning that we speak about chronic disease, so sometimes they have symptoms and they don't uh, report it because for them it's normal, but still it's very important when monitoring an IV to ask about the quality of life, the symptoms of alveolar hypoventilation, how they sleep, how they tolerate the NIV. But to do this, we don't use a questionnaire because in my view, the questionnaire is a little bit too rigid and uh, I prefer to open the discussion and let the patient talk and I know exactly what kind of information I want. So usually the nurse will do this this discussion and we know exactly what we want at the end. But you know, most of the time the patient, when they arrive, they have one topic they want to talk to you. And it's probably not related to NIV, it's related to some other healthcare problem. And First, you have to listen what they have to say because it's totally useless to to speak about your own questionnaire. So when they are done and when you have an answer to their, to their question, then you can talk about NIV, how they tolerate and so on.
0: I understand. Thank you, Jean-Michel, for this insightful discussion.
1: Thank you, Nina. It was very great to talk to you.
0: And to the listeners, I hope you've gained some new knowledge that you can use in your clinics to increase home NIV treatment comfort for your patient. You've been listening to On Air with Clinical Respiratory News. For new episode alerts and clinical updates, subscribe to our newsletter.